Hello, dear listener. Welcome to this, uh, the first episode of our 14th uh, season, uh, as it were, of our Sabbath School from Home podcast. Uh, I'm personally uh, looking forward to this this topic quite a lot. I think that it's going to be a very fruitful study. We're looking at the book of Ephesians. Uh, my name's Cameron. And I'm Lachlan. Yeah, uh, it's quite interesting to just have another quarter. They, they seem to oscillate backwards and forwards between a bit more thematic and um, and sort of a bit more <clears throat> focused on one particular book of the Bible. And, and although our last one was on Revelation, it, it was very much um, focused on key and well-trodden themes within sort of Adventist perspectives. So what we've got for the next 13 weeks is an exploration of the book of Ephesians. And it I think is pretty fair to say, Camp, that the book of Ephesians is statistically probably a little bit more uplifting and perhaps a little bit more widely read for fun than the book of Revelation. I think I think that'd be fair. I think it would also be fair to say uh, that we're you know reading a book that's very sort of core Christian doctrine. There's going to be a lot that we talk about which unites us with the Christian community at large, as opposed to divides us. And I'm looking forward to that. Uh, when I said we're going to study the book of Ephesians, we we are in all the other podcasts, but in this one, we're not. Um, <laughs> we thought we'd start, we thought we'd start, and the lesson does spend a couple of days looking at this, but it's, you know, there's a lot that happens in the book of Acts, in, in Luke's telling of the story of the missionary sort of journey um, and uh, how God's church grew. And um, there's a description of what happens when Paul visits Ephesus. And there's a fair bit in here, but we thought we'd pick up from Acts 19. Like, I'm not sure exactly how much we'll get through. So I, I propose, instead of reading a block passage, let's just read verses and comment as we go. And then when we run out of time, we'll stop. Okay, I think that's great. I'd, I'd like to start. Um, so I'm going to pick up just in Acts, uh, Acts 19, uh, verse 1. I'll read a couple of verses and I can already feel a comment um, welling up within me. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. All right, I was going to get a little bit further, but let's just comment on that. Isn't that interesting? So they're labeled as disciples, um, but they have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And of course, that's not completely wild. It feels it a bit, but Jesus's speaking of the Holy Spirit is most clear in, am I recalling this right, in his interactions after his resurrection, um, where he sort of says, I'm going to be going away, but but I'm going to be leaving um, as, as, you know, the Holy Spirit. These, these people, it's hard to know in what sense they are believers. Um, we're about to discover that the baptism they have is the baptism of John the Baptist. Mm. Uh, how much presumably they know about Christ's, Christ's death and resurrection. Otherwise, it would be hard to classify them as believers. Uh, if they receive the baptism of John, is this a message that they picked up early on in Christ's ministry when they were happened to be in Jerusalem for Passover? Or, mm. you know, you can imagine these people being a little bit removed from the church. I like the idea that uh, Paul found them. Yes. He didn't, he didn't know they were there. He just turned up and, oh, here's some believers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I think uh, there's a lot to be, I mean, it's obvious point, but worth just explicitly reiterating. We're reading 
events that happened in a culture where you couldn't just keep up to date with all of the happenings on Twitter. Um, so, you know, news traveled slowly, information um, dissipated with a, with a slow diffusion rate. I'm not sure if the early church had the resources. Well, I'm certain they didn't. But I'm not sure even if they had the resources available in terms of writing implements and, you know, a well-developed postal system or whatever. Um, I don't know if they would have bothered to spend those resources on keeping a church role. <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. But this, this, this idea of it being we, we, and it's partly our culture and it's partly the fact that we have information gathering techniques and abilities that, you know, are completely foreign to the experience of every human that's ever lived except for humans from the last, you know, 50 years. Mm -hmm. So we live in a really sort of anomalous time. Uh, but we, we are quite you know, sort of careful about who's on the roll and yeah, who's not. Paul just found these people and they were believers. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, let's pick good. it up. Um, so they'd not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Verse 3. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men well, in all. Right, this is quite a small group yeah. of believers. Uh, look, there's a couple of things to talk about here. Uh, one of them is, it seems to me a bit nitpicky to say that the baptism of John was not sufficient. I mean, the baptism of John must have been highly significant mm. because Christ was baptized mm. by John. You're exactly right. You're actually making that remark has reminded me of a far larger discussion that I have participated in on and off at various times because there are Christians who occasionally seek rebaptism. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes this is because baptized um, perhaps even as infants or perhaps as young children. And then, um, you know, life takes them on a bit of a journey and they, they come back to a position and want to sort of express a sort of disconnect from where their life may have taken them. So that can be a rebaptism. Uh, sometimes rebaptism is sort of motivated by this feeling of, well, when I was baptized the first time, I didn't fully understand. And, and now I understand so much better. And uh, I think that these gestures all have meaning for the people involved, but I'm I'm always a slightly intrigued by this idea of being rebaptized simply because the first time round I didn't understand everything. Because surely that's a continual process. I mean, to the extent that I understand things today, be. I may understand things a whole lot better tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was having lunch once, uh, lock with uh, Mr. Howard, um, our math high school maths teacher. Yeah, and. Uh, he was commenting on the fact that he was coming up to a significant wedding anniversary and he was making a joke as he usually, you know, was. Um, and he's saying, you know, my wife wants me to renew the, you know, have a, we'll, you know, have a little special time where we say the wedding vows again. He said, why? I haven't broken them. <laughs> um, you know, we're still married, mm. he said, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I sort of think one of the very powerful um processes or or reasons for baptism is not not declaring i have crossed a threshold but but declaring i have changed to a to a new direction um and we've talked about this idea before of direction based groupings rather than 
distance or, or boundary-based hmm. groupings. In that sense, I think it may well have been unnecessary for these believers to have been rebaptized. Although, having said that, something in verse 5 is recorded, verse 6 I mean, uh, that does indicate something different, special and unusual happened here. And I'll admit, the the spirit coming on them and them speaking in tongues and prophesying is actually outside my experience of of the Christian life. So, so there we are. <laughs> well, like uh, the thing, the the gesture, or the the the, um, you know, it may have been unnecessary. I was going to call it the custom or the gesture. None of those are describe it adequately. What would you say? The choice, the choice yeah. to be baptized yeah. again. The ritual uh, may not have, yeah, that may not have been necessary, except that in their minds they wanted to, mm. and it held for them significance. And um, this opens up another question about, you know, if someone wants to be baptised into the Adventist church and we don't think they're quite ready, mm. they really want to, on what grounds can we legitimately say, well, we don't think you're ready yet? Because like you say, there's a sense in which you want all choices to be informed choices. Yeah. Um, there's another sense in which if the thing has meaning for a person and it is a choice they're making right now and they're a free agent able to make that choice, ought we not affirm mm. that choice? In terms of the speaking in tongues, the traditional Adventist view is, of course, that the gift of tongues is simply that, like like in um, Acts 2, when, when the disciples speak and everyone hears in their own language. Mm. So it's a gift that's given only for the furtherance of the gospel, and it's, it's only when a person is able to speak in a language that's an earthly language, that's mm. a, you know, the language of a people here on earth, for that people to better understand the gospel. Uh, do you get the sense that is what happened? On this occasion, so I don't really, especially because of verse seven, where it simply just says there were about twelve men in all. The t- telling of this story doesn't emphasize the largeness of the crowd and the diversity, p- perhaps of of native languages. The telling of the story seems to me to emphasize a sort of an intimacy of you know a smallness, a a, um, yeah. a, a close community, an important community, and you know we as Australians don't really understand multilingual societies. We, we find it even difficult to imagine them. Um, Australia is very dominated by, by English speaking. And of course, you have to cross the ocean to get to places where the dominant languages spoken are something other than English. Um, certainly living for a time in, in Europe, in Germany, I, I became a little bit more aware of just how multilingual societies can can have these layers of depth um, you know everyone knowing two three or more languages um, does change things a bit but yeah um, if you contrast it like like you mentioned acts 2 uh, very clearly in the con acts 2 is in the context of a large crowd public proclamation um, yeah this this seems a different a different thing perhaps well it does seem I'm just thinking like one of our favorite um, other passages and uh is in Axis Cornelius, we've referred to um, this a couple of times. Mm. I'm looking, where is this? Doesn't the spirit come on Cornelius and his household? And that's a very pivotal thing when, when that report is brought back by Peter to the New Testament church. Yeah, because am I, I'm recalling the same thing. And the, the phrasing used is, you know, who are we to withhold baptism from these people if the Holy Spirit has already come upon them? Peter was amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'm reading from verse 44 of chapter 10 of Acts. Um, Peter was amazed because he saw the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles for they 
were speaking in tongues and extolling God. Hmm. These members all belonged to the same household. Yeah. Presumably, they had a basis for communicating yeah. with each other. They, this is a domestic household. Um, you know, I don't know what to make of the gift of tongues uh, myself, but I am not satisfied with the, the Adventist position that says it can only mean, at least I'm not satisfied from the point of view of Scripture, mm. that, that it can only mean, you know, translation. Yeah, I, I encountered an interesting and slightly challenging thought just recently in a podcast with the, um, I guess, historian and, and theologian Tom Wright, N.T. Wright. And he was asked a question about tongues. And he comes from the Anglican tradition where, again, a bit like us, speaking in tongues is not a large and prominently emphasized, you know, I mean, sort of ecstatic utterances and the more Pentecostal side of, of this, I guess, which is what we're sort of hovering around. Um, and he, in that podcast, in answering the question, he shared that um, certainly it hadn't been part of his Christian experience early on, but um, at some point as an adult, as a younger adult, um, he had a friend who was from uh, more of the Pentecostal tradition. And I can't remember all of the details of it, but it, the, the thing that stuck with me was that um, Tom Wright expressed that he has on occasion found speaking in tongues, ecstatic utterances, to be an, a valuable personal experience and personal activity. And he was, he was actually contrasting it to the, to the showing off sort of element that sometimes um, accompanies all of this. You know, the, the most extreme version of it is, is when people declare that until you have uh, ecstatically utterance, uh, uttered in heavenly languages, you, you have not actually received the Holy Spirit and thus your, your conversion is not complete. So that's, that's the most extreme position and neither, like, neither that's I... That's very close to... <laughs> Yeah, no, neither you nor uh, Tom Wright holds that point of view, but it's very close to what Paul holds. <laughs> I know, I know. I guess what I'm commenting on here is the interest. The thing that jumped out at me as being interesting was, okay, um, just like we have other spiritual disciplines, that that um, some of which are, are useful activities in the personal lives of believers, um, could there could there be something interesting happening, you know, in that context? Here with the speaking mm. of tongues, but you're right to call me to call me back to the text because in both the story of Cornelius and and also here in Acts 19, um, it is the the grouping of the events is certainly carrying the implication that it's that it's demonstrating some sort of coming of the Holy Spirit in a powerful and meaningful way um, that had not happened prior to Paul arriving in Ephesus, mm. at least for these twelve believers. Yeah, it's very interesting. It, I have to I have to admit that it means that I must humbly remain open to the fact that it is just something a, a growth and development point to which I have not yet reached yeah and that's an important factor to keep in mind look if we resent this idea that we can't have a really full experience of God until we have spoken in tongues um, you know we say well that's a bit hard and fast the implication is, the implication is, how dare you pass judgment on my experience of God? Of course, my experience of God's okay. Yeah. And the answer to that is, well, no, it's not. Yeah. None, of, none of our experience of God is at all. You know, we're seeing through a mirror very darkly. Yeah. So, um, you know, there must be for all of us many aspects in which our we, we have not yet fully received God's spirit. So, um, yeah, well, 
in the interests of moving on to the story of Paul's interaction at Ephesus, I'm going to keep going and leave leave the tongues for the moment. Uh, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew them uh, from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. <laughs> Tyrannus doesn't sound like a good thing. What's the footnote there? Uh, oh, no, the footnote doesn't tell us anything more about Tyrannus. Well, all I can um, say this... is that the translation I'm looking at says the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And um, I certainly know a number of students at the University of Newcastle who believe in lecture halls being tyrannous. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, this continued for two years so that all the residents of all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I don't think he means every person in Asia. I think he means uh, all of them in the sense Jews and Greeks. Mm. He shared the word indiscriminately with the people he met. Um, yeah, that sounds yeah. plausible. Yeah. Okay, uh, we, this next passage is one we've spoken about previously on the podcast, but it, it must be from a very long time ago because I can't remember what we said. So let's see if we can add anything new. Uh, the God uh, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, verse 12, so that even hanker, hanker, yeah, handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists uh, took undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <laughs> Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and <laughs> overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <laughs> and this became known all over the residents, uh, known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. I suspect it would. And fear, it was on TikTok. It went viral. I'd say it went um, very viral, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it has and all the fear right fell elements. upon them all. Yeah. Um, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued, counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right. So, I mean, this is fascinating to me. Um, I have to admit, I live in a house with a number of bookshelves and both me and my wife are very fond of books and uh, could, I think, fairly be accused of, of collecting books. The, there, this is not the first or last time that the burning of books is recorded. And it's a, it's a cultural, th it's a way to make a statement. But every time I hear of books being burned, it gives me a very, very bad feeling. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a good or comforting story. <laughs> I, I, I'm willing to accept that these are bad books, but how do we know there wasn't something good and useful? <laughs> well, they were pretty sure that there wasn't anything good or useful in them. I wonder what sort of thing was in them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so magical arts. It's fairly vague. Yeah. I mean, especially, so a number who had practiced sorcery uh, is how it's expressed in the New Living Translation. Look, if you would... Uh, honestly probe some of the stories in the old testament with with moses going and and turning having his staff turned into a snake and then his snake staff eating and consuming the staffs of the other 
um, priests, sorcerers, sorcerers um, who they had managed to turn into snakes. I mean, the whole that that is a bit. It's it seems all, all I'm saying is if God is willing to do that in Exodus, doesn't it seem slightly extreme to <laughs> just bundle all this stuff? That's ah, all sorcery. You got to got to get rid of it all. Um, yeah. Well. Um, you know, uh, yeah, but there's an element too. I mean, a lot of what they might have considered sorcery in, you know, the early days of alchemy, we now understand as a fairly simple process of cause and effect. Mm. And if you add this substance to that substance, you get a precipitate of copper sulfate or something and the whole thing goes blue and it looks very impressive and looks, I guess, a bit like sorcery. So, you know, there's a sort of a grey zone here. I think the important thing is... um, whether or not the books had any merit in and of themselves, the mm. people felt like they were books that the keeping of which would separate them from God. Yeah, and actually, it, and it, there's, I mean, it should be contrasted yeah. with the um, seven sons of Sceva. Um, so they, and and the whole category of people that they represent in verse thirteen, I think it implies that there were a number of um, Jews driving out evil spirits, who chose to invoke the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. That's super interesting, isn't it? Because that's essentially saying, hey, um, it's a bit like the scientist with the horseshoe hanging over his lab door who says, well, I've heard it works even if you don't believe in it. Exactly. (laughs) And the... To me, what what's happening in these just these couple of verses that you read out is, and this is super super interesting context to keep in mind as we as in future weeks we turn our attention to to reading the book of Ephesians. It just suggests to me that there's a whole lot of different people struggling to work out the best way to interact. Paul is clearly causing quite a lot of uh, news. I mean, he, he's he's being mm. fairly popular. The, the the Christian message coming to Ephesus is not something yep. that is just happening quietly and underground. I mean, it's it's yep. being done in public places, lecture halls, prominent places. It's impacting the the you know the pop culture of the day, and the and the healers are realizing there's a new name, and if we you know this is upping our game, and the some some others are sort of realizing, oh, hang on, um, actually it's a whole lot more serious than we thought, and and really the the we don't want to fall in, we don't we don't, we don't want to even appear. As if we're taking this lighthearted, so we're going to burn some books here. We're going to really make a statement, and again, not not quietly at one a.m. out the back of Bob's shed, but it you know burned them publicly is what it says there in verse nineteen. I guess I'm I'm noticing the prominence of the the social and cultural impact that that Paul is having here in Ephesus. Yeah, yeah, um, and there's a different also sense in which um, you know same objects can mean different things to different people so you know i'm remember i can't remember who it was but i remember hearing a testimony of someone when i was growing up in one of the youth tents at big camp someone who had a you know large record collection Hmm. and they'd gotten to the point where they destroyed it because for them it felt very strongly like this obsession over the music um was you know something that kept them away from god now there are probably some songs on those records worth destroying. There were doubtless some songs on the records that probably didn't need to be destroyed, but for that person, they definitely needed to be destroyed. Mm. Um, so, you know, and when Christ says, if your hand causes you to sin, then chop it off. Yeah. Um, other people's hands might not cause them to sin. Um, Paul is, of course, very fluent with secular culture because when he gets to Greece, he quotes the pagan prophets. Yeah. 
So, you know, presumably, and Paul even said, and this, this adage, I find this verse at once comforting and at once it opens such a Pandora's box for self-deceit. When, when Paul says, all right, yeah, but if you're strong and you can eat the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, do it. That's fine. But if there's someone around who it bothers, then don't do it. <laughs> don't don't tempt those weak suffering. And that's such a lovely principle. The principle is to say, all right, well, you know, if you if you are at one place in your faith, but what you're doing is confronting someone else, then change what you do. Mm. That's really nice. But it also seems to suggest, you know, the attitude which I don't think is helpful of, well, I know this would be wrong for everyone else, but I think it's okay for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> um, I think I think what these verses do show is that um, it's it's a hard well, hard's not the right word. Uh, I don't mean hard as in strenuous. I mean hard as in unclear. Sometimes um, we receive this message. We get some sense of God's involvement in our life. We feel in some indescribable way that He has reached out to us. We want to respond to that. And there seems to be some sort of level of imprecision in what that response should be. Hmm. You know, these sons of Sceva think they're doing the right thing. Yep, yep. They think they're signing up to the bandwagon and there's not quite... Incidentally, it's not... There's no suggestion in the text that the sons of Sceva didn't then change their ways and engage more fully and become part of the church. There's, they're just not mentioned again, so we don't really know what happened. But, hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, people are trying to work out what does this actually look like. In our lives, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that many uh, verse eighteen jump, jumps out at me in that context. Many of those who believed now, this is after the seven sons were overpowered and ran away of the, from a house naked and bleeding. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. So it seems as if there's a whole lot of people who, on the one hand, are labelled as those who believed. So. So that's interesting. Yeah. They're they're being counted as believers, and yet they're also openly confessing what they've done. And it's a number of those that burn their sorcery scrolls. It seems to me. So it's implied that quite a number have been doing similar sorts of magic yeah. with the name of Jesus, yeah. and are suddenly confronted with the idea that it's you know they've sort of believed it, but they're now saying realizing it's wow, it's actually. This is true on a whole yeah. different level. And maybe maybe one of the sources of confusion is that um, the way pagans worshipped was very like magic. Mm. Kill the right sort of goat. Oh, but you've got to do it at the right time with the moon in the right place and sprinkle the blood in the right way. There's even sort of a faint suggestion of this in the Old Testament, but very much in the, in the pagan communities. If we can just sort of crack the formula, we'll appease the gods and... And doing these things in this way will then ensure, like, just like abracadabra, it'll, the rain will come for our crops. Yes. Um, and uh, so that's sort of the whole dominant cultural mindset that they're, that they're in. That's what religion means to them. Yeah. And so when we say that they worshipped pagan gods, what they meant by worship is so different from what a Christian means by worship. Yes. Because we say we, say we worship God for who he is. That, that is not why the pagans worshipped their gods. Mm. And this is, Luke made this point a couple of weeks ago. Like, I can't remember if you're on the recording or not, but he said, you know, it's important that we worship God as creator. This was stressed in last quarter. Is it? If God created the world, but he was indifferent or nasty or did it as a cruel joke or mm. did it by accident or, you know, you could imagine scenarios where God created the world, but 
would not be worthy of worship in the way that we understand worship. Mm. We worship God not only because he created the world, but for his continual interaction with us and and um, the person of Christ. Um, you know, it's typified in, in his death and resurrection. We, we claim that we have then seen a real insight into who God is, not just not just what he's done. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it's quite a different sort of cultural mindset. And, of course, the, the pagans did believe that the world was made by cruel and indifferent gods who did it more or less by accident. Yep. Uh, so there's there's a there's a quite interesting shift here. It's fascinating though that the seven sons of Sceva don't come from the pagan background; they come from a Jewish background because their their father's a priest. Yep. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Are they maybe maybe here's an interesting idea. Maybe what the author is saying there's you know this passage refers to about three or four times the Greek and the Jew. Mm. Maybe what the author is saying here is, uh, I'm putting words into his mouth, is Paul's going out preaching to the Greeks and the Jews, and you'd kind of expect that the Jews would have a head start on the Greeks because they've got a bit of clearer picture about how God was. But you'll never guess it. Both the Jews and the Greeks treated this as some cheap party trick, Yeah. Um, that this was like some magic formula. And there's the story of the sons of the high priest, and then there's the story of, you know, the people in the city coming and burning. I doubt the sons of the high priest had books on sorcery. Yeah. So, you know, maybe maybe what the author is trying to say here is that as Paul's going on his missionary journey, it's both the Jews and the Greeks that are in bad, you know, need of this message. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The, the, um, everyone is experiencing quite a, a substantial reconfiguration, recalibration of, of a reality, a new reality uh, informed through the message of Jesus and through the experience of the Holy Spirit. That seems to be what's being discussed. Um, we, I'm looking at the time, and we're only halfway through this chapter, and we might not have time to fully read through. Can I briefly summarize what then happens? Um, because yeah. I, there's a point I want to make that that is perhaps going to also be helpful, <clears throat> even though I think I've probably made it again. So the second half of Acts 19 is labeled the riot in Ephesus in the Bible that I'm reading. Mm. And what happens, kind of, you can see it. The seeds of it have just been planted in the story, right? So everyone is saying, hey, we're, um, we're going to burn our books on sorcery. We're, we're changing. We're, we can see the difference now between religion, gods, um, rituals, and, and idols, and all these things that we've experienced before. None of it seems to hold a candle to this to this spirit that Paul is baptizing people into, and this Jesus that that he that he preaches, and so um, silversmith uh, gets together with other silversmiths and says, "Well, you know, people are not going to buy the gods that we make. They're not going to buy our, our idols." And so they they start a riot effectively, and they're shouting, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" And the whole city is in uproar. Um, the people. <laughs> sees Paul's traveling companions. And, um, you know, Paul, I think is fascinating here. He wanted to appear, uh, verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. This is not the first time that others have had a little bit more of a of a cautious approach to Paul's life than he has himself. There's, I'm reminded like, I'm reminded like of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which we've just been re- reading with our kids, uh, when the dragon lands on the beach between them and the boat. 
and there's a hurried conference to know what to do and it's a massive you know huge dragon it, at a later point in the story it tears down and flies and carries a huge pine tree yeah so it's a it's a large creature and one of the one of the companions on the boat is a mouse it's a talking mouse reaper cheap and Caspian says, no, Reaper Cheap, I will not let you attempt single combat with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Reaper Cheap's keen to, to head out there. Well, that seems... I mean, Paul, uh, it's, he's not wanting single combat with weapons, but he, it seems that he's wanting uh, the debate. Uh, and Paul does seem yeah. to be a character who is always up for a bit of clever wordsmithing and a little bit of reason, a little bit of logic, a little bit of articulation of, of thought processes and worldviews, and that seems to be what he wants. Anyway, it all it all culminates because um, the, the crowd shouts for two hours in unison, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Basically, no one's going to have any dialogue because we're going to drown it all out. We're not interested in anyone trying to finagle their way through this with words we're just going to keep shouting for two hours what's mm. fascinating is the way it wraps up so the city clerk quieted the crowd um you know pretty much kind of says the you, you've brought people here but they're not stolen anything they're not robbing anything you know if there's an actual grievance the courts are open so so there's a there's due process everyone settle down and um if we keep doing what we're doing here we're going to be charged with rioting and you know, he's kind of appealing to, hey, 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 we've got a sensible system mm. here. There are appropriate procedures. You're, you're out of line. Interestingly, it's not Paul that's being labeled as out of line. Um, and in verse 41, the chapter ends, after the clerk had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So this is the, the right. First observation is that it speaks exactly to the point I just made. There is nothing undercover about Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. It's Mm. absolute front page news and it seems to be not just mm. once but multiple times it seems uh, well, he stays there for many years so at one point it says in the passage we read that he stayed there for two more years yeah well uh, quite clearly it probably wasn't riots in the in the streets every single day of those of those two years but it seems to me as if it would have been a fairly stimulating time in Ephesus yeah I wonder what Paul was like as a pastor because we've got a sense of of how he would have done as a preacher. Um, the roles of preacher and pastor obviously overlap fairly heavily, um, but there's a lot that a pastor has to do in, in nurturing people and comforting people and taking funerals. And, you know, you, you can imagine that Paul would have been involved in the community. Mm. Mm. I wonder what he was like. He was obviously fairly effective at, and we tend to think of him as, as a sort of Billy Graham figure who, who, I don't. This may be unfair on Billy Graham. I don't. I don't actually know a lot about his life. I'm sort of digging into the collective subconscious here. But um, uh, you know, this figure who turns up and holds huge meetings and then leaves. Mm. But of course, he was not like that. He he turned up and he nurtured and he counselled and he lived with them and he worked with them. Mm. Uh, he must have been a very fascinating person. So I think you're right. Um, and the one last. Uh, you know, basically you're observing that there's a whole lot of, you know, there's only some aspects of the story being told here. We're reading from Acts and there's all sorts of other aspects of this that would be fascinating to know. And that brings to my mind the the comment that I wanted to make here. Um, a number of, and I think I've made it on the podcast before, a number of years ago, I was sitting in a, in a Sabbath school group and um, someone had been reading a book. I don't know the name of the book or the author, unfortunately. I have not read that original source. I, I just was captivated by the idea from this book through a person in a Sabbath school that I sat in that Luke 
writing the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts was actually writing Paul's legal defense for his trial in Rome. And it's, it explains a number of things. It explains why, although Paul is the key figure in the book of Acts, the book ends before Paul's trial and before Paul's death. If you're writing a biography, it is a very bad biography. But if you're writing a legal defense, it's masterful. Because look at what's happened here in, this, in the chapter 19. What's happened is yeah. a description has been given of Paul arriving in a new place that's part of the Roman Empire. And Paul has <clears throat> equally provoked the Jews and the Greeks, you know, the Romans and the Gentiles, the, the Romans and the, and the non-Romans. Yeah. Um, so he's been a little bit provocative, but at no point has he broken the law. And that's backed up because the clerk, the city clerk of Ephesus, even though it got almost to the point of rioting, it wasn't Paul that was doing any of the rioting. In fact, in this story, Paul is probably more law abiding. And especially if you think of Romans obsession with civil peace, um, you know, Paul is, Paul is the least, um, rabulous of anyone in this story and is yeah. effectively declared innocent because the statement is made in the, you know, in the mouth of a key witness, the city clerk of Ephesus. Mm. If there is a grievance, the courts are open. You can come and you can legally challenge this guy, uh, which doesn't happen. Mm. And if it didn't happen in the courts of Ephesus, then that seems to be powerful uh, evidence yeah. of it's Paul's a innocence in a, in a legally culpable sense. And so I can't help... Um, every time I now read, especially the book of Acts, but also the gospel of Luke, I always now ask myself the question, how would this story be used if you were trying to be a defense lawyer at the trial of Paul? Oh, we need Ken here. Yeah. We need Ken here. Look, I'm going to run that idea past him. I think he'll like it. Of course, um, it's a useful paradigm, even if this document was not, you know, one of the court submissions at the trial, that sort of worldview might still hold. So this is, of course, a letter written to Theophilus. Mm. We don't know who Theophilus is, except it's not a Hebrew name. It's a Greco-Roman name, mm. as I understand it. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I, I think the same, yeah. It's, it has a very Greek sound to me, at least. Um, so there's some bloke called Theophilus who's interested to know. And you could imagine the question would go something like this. These Christians... Um, trouble seems to spring up wherever they go. Mm. They're always in some sort of trouble. You know, are they, are they just troublemakers? What's the, what's the meaning behind all this? And Luke says, well, I'll explain to you, O Theophilus. And in that sense, it is a defense. Yes. He's saying, well, let me start with the story of Christ, the, the basic story that that about the person who these people follow. Mm. And then let's look at how it played out and look you can judge for yourself. Are these people rabulous and, and troublemakers or, or are... You know, yeah. Um, are they onto something that's that's real? One of the um, podcast episodes we did, Locke, that I've since used as a sermon because I liked it so much, I found it really fruitful, was one we did ages ago where we looked at the story of the Israelites when they first entered the Promised Land mm. and they had, they had a really clear set of instructions in Deuteronomy that were really black and white. Yep. And um, one of those commandments, if you remember, was to not build an altar anywhere except at the place that God would choose. There was going to be a centralised place of worship. And the first thing that happens when they enter the Promised Land is two of the tribes who live on the other side of the river build an altar. Hmm. And the whole nation of Israel turns up, the army turns up to destroy these two tribes because they're like, no, you're disobeying God and God will be angry with us. And um, the two tribes say, just hold on a minute. We haven't built this altar as a sacrifice. 
a place to actually sacrifice. This altar is a memorial. It's a reminder to us and to you that even though we live on the other side of the river, we are still part of your nation and we still worship your God. Mm. This is going to be like a reminder piece. And everyone says, oh, well, well that's okay then. Um, but, you know, it came very close to the total genocide of two tribes. And the reason why I like the story is... Um, it's easy to get discouraged when you look at all the arguments that crop up in a Christian community and say, well, why is a life of faith so hard? You know, it used to be so simple. Yeah. You know, back back in the New Testament, back when Jesus was walking yeah. around. Well, actually, if you do read the Gospels, it wasn't that simple when Jesus was walking around. <laughs> and, and, and when you ask the question, how soon did the question, how will I actually implement this in my life? How soon did that become complicated for mm. God's people? And, you know... It becomes complicated. They're making, you know, decisions about interpretation and expression of their faith that cause disagreement in God's people the minute they enter the promised land. Mm. And someone's doing something and someone else says, well, they'd only do that if they were rebelling against Israel, building their own altar. Look at them. They're building their own altar. They must be rebelling against us, rebelling against God. Let's go and kill them. Yeah. And then they turn up with an army and the people say, no, 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 no. It's the opposite. This is This altar's saying that we belong to God. Oh, oh, okay. And they talk about it for a bit and they say, yeah, yeah well, that's okay. There's, there's a clear injunction in Deuteronomy not to build any other altars. Mm. The consensus of the community in this instance is that this particular memorial is quite appropriate. Yeah. And they decide to run with it. And what you find in the New Testament church is the same. It's not the case that the New Testament church was on fire and harmonious and everything was perfect and we should all aspire to be like the Acts 2 church. Um, the Acts 2 church was just as beset by problems yep. Yep. that require. And that's what we're seeing here in Ephesians. And I think one of the things that the lesson refers to this week and one of the things I'm looking forward to is the book of Ephesians is, you know, Paul trying to help real people. Yeah. You know, in some sense, the message of salvation is so simple. But in another sense, when you ask the question, well, how, how, does, how do I actually live? Hmm. Um. Yeah, well, that's. I think we should leave it there. I, I mean, I shared that anecdote about about the idea of Acts being written as as a legal defense of Paul, partly because what we've done in this episode is read about Paul in Ephesus. But what we need to do mm. for the rest of this quarter is read from Paul to Ephesus. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I'm I'm anticipating that the emphases will be a bit different. For example, we've we've in Acts we've heard a whole lot about what the crowd did. We've heard almost nothing about what Paul said, right? We, we've yeah. we've seen the social and cultural effects and impacts, but yeah. but we're left wanting a little bit when it comes to. But what was he actually saying? You know, what was the sort of yeah. reasoning that he was outlining? And and I think for that we're going to, you know, obviously there's one place to turn, and that's that's to Ephesians. Um, and yeah. you know, I think there'll be a lot of value in pondering and exploring some of the things that that Paul said. But um, yeah. I hope for the listeners, certainly for me, this has been a really fun way to, to, to do that gear change that always happens when we go from one quarter to another quarter and we, we're suddenly in a slightly different frame of mind looking at a slightly different topic. Uh, I'm going to try my best yeah. in coming weeks to retain the, the vividness of this idea of Paul's actions in this city being really prominent, really newsworthy, um, mm. viral through, yeah. Throughout, yeah. throughout the culture. Yeah. Excellent. And hopefully uh, Luke and Ken will be joining us. Um, this one was pulled together at, at the last minute. Um, our schedules, you know, don't get any easier to align lock. And I was reflecting that we started this podcast during lockdown. And for all the bad things that could be said about lockdown, um, schedules were a lot simpler. Yep, that's it. People were much more likely to be uh, found at home. 
<laughs> yeah. So so what when I am you know think with frustration about how complex my day is sometimes, I now will remind myself that the alternative is lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> that will that will help me to think uh, think better uh, of all all my complicated life. Um, Thank you to you, our listener. We hope you join us and continue us, you know, on this ride. We have fun doing these uh, podcasts, and uh, look, it is uh, my Sabbath school, my church, um, and I know that uh, Ken and Luke feel the same. They've said so often, and we hope also that this gives some sort of sense of community to you. If you have any, you know, questions or directions that you would like us to look into. Um, and you know, do some research on and respond to. Then you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail dot com, and uh, you can also feel very free to share this podcast with uh, your friends and your enemies. Uh, please join us again next week. <laughs>